We're on to the conference finals in the NBA as the Celtics get a record-setting performance from Jason Tatum and a date with a familiar foe. Actually, this is an exact carbon copy of a memorable or not-so-memorable Final Four just a few years ago. Also, John Moran is up to his old tricks as I'll get into that. The Seattle Kraken won't go away. They'll have another Game 7 to play for as the NHL is awaiting them or the Dallas Stars for the semifinals. It was a wild weekend in baseball as you had comebacks, surprise sweeps, and a near brawl in Colorado. I'll get into the NFL schedule as I sift through the good and the bad, and a bit of a surprise regarding Kentucky Derby winner Mage as the Preakness is this Saturday. Chugging along as we're in the middle of May, delivering the latest happenings and goings-on. Is that a phrase? In sports, it's all coming up, but first, this message. J Reels here, just passing by to send a brief reminder to please subscribe, rate, review this podcast, the J Reels Podcast, on wherever you listen to your podcast, whether it's on Apple, Google, Spreaker, Stitcher, Spotify, iHeartRadio, Luminary, CastBox, all of the major platforms that are out there, whichever one that you listen to, once again, just throw me a few stars, write a review, I would greatly appreciate it just to increase the visibility of this podcast with all the others that are out there, especially this one, which covers all sports in roughly one hour. Where else are you going to get that? So if you can go ahead and please do that, I would sincerely and gratefully appreciate it. And with that said, let's get it. The J Reels Podcast begins in 5, 4, 3, 2, 1. Let's get this sports podcast party started, all right? The J Reels Podcast. Why don't you wait until July 1st to make an announcement? What a disgrace. He can rack up all these numbers in October, November, and December, but what really counts is let me see this in January. The Sports Rebel Without a Pause, delivering fast-paced, jam-packed sports talk like no other. Listen, I gotta call it as I see it, he is not a good player. I'm sick and tired of having to deal with the disappointment of this franchise. When does it stop? And yes, another winter that I can sleep in peace. Coming correct, direct, and in full effect. Let's get it. This is the J-Rills Podcast. Welcome aboard. What is happening, Michael? People, greetings. How are you? How's it going? How's everybody doing out there? What is the latest and greatest? I hope everybody's doing well, feeling fantastic, in excellent spirits. We're just two weeks away from the unofficial beginning of summer. Man, before you know it, we'll be doing a deep dive into July and August, talking about the MLB trade deadline and training camps in the NFL. But thankfully, that's for then, and this is now, the current, the present, the moment, as I share all my thoughts, opinions, and analysis on what the sports universe has given us over the last few days as this is the J Reels Podcast with your host, J Reels. For my first-timers, welcome aboard. And for those who have been banging with me going back to the very beginning, somewhere in the middle, or even as early as this past Thursday, I welcome you guys and gals back. It's an exciting time here in the sports world as we're just this close to getting to the conference finals in both sports We know the NBA, it's already set for tomorrow and Wednesday night, where we'll have Lakers Nuggets followed by Heat and Celtics, and what is going to be, I think, a fascinating Final Four. When we look back at these two series to just three years ago in the bubble, and I get it, it was antiseptic, I get it that it was in late September into October, and nobody had basketball on their minds as everybody was just trying to get through the early portion and even getting toward the middle of this pandemic and not being able to really get into the NBA for a lot of people, whether it was because it was football season and nobody really cared about the NBA or even NHL for that matter, as they had their Stanley Cup playoffs and finals go deep into September. 
And then you had all of the social justice, the everything that took place during that summer. And not to rehash or recap that, as we all know, that was just a brutal year altogether with everything that's gone on in this country. So you had people that were turned off by the message that the NBA was sending at that time. And although it could have been memorable or maybe not so memorable, depending on how you look at it, but these final four teams that are here now were also those same final four teams just three years ago. Now, granted, I understand different cast of characters. It's not exactly the same teammates, but you do have the stars that are there, the Nikola Jokic's of the world, the Jamal Murray's. You also have, obviously, LeBron, AD, Jason Tatum, Jalen Brown, Jimmy Butler. So you have those cast of characters who were a part of that mix Just, again, three years ago, it might as well felt like 30 when you think about it because of what took place during that time and how we were just trying to get through that as best as possible. But when you have those stars that are going to be front and center here over the next two weeks, at least you have that to chew on and what they've been able to do up until this point. And let's recap that as we segue into this conference finals, but with the semifinals now behind us. And I'll start with what happened yesterday The only Game 7, and I'm sure the NBA was very disappointed because when we last met on Thursday, that was the start of four Game 6s. You had Boston-Philadelphia, the first game on Thursday night, followed by Denver-Phoenix, and then Friday you had the doubleheader with Heat-Knicks as well as Warriors and Lakers, and I'll go in that order. So for the Celtics, I'll start there. We looked at that Game 6, and it was nip and tuck. I know for the Celtic fan like myself, I was sick to my stomach knowing that Jason Tatum looked like he was going to just implode and not be able to get on track. And it was going to be one of those games. Remember, in this setting a year ago, game six in Milwaukee, he scored 46 points. Was the Celtic fan like myself looking to have that type of dominant or carbon copy of a performance that we saw last year, this year? Of course, we would always want to think that, but we'd have to watch it in front of our eyes to see if he was going to rise to that occasion. Thankfully for Tatum, in the last four minutes of game number six, he was able to come close to what we saw after an abysmal first three and a half quarters. He couldn't find his way around the court, was unable to get a field goal in the first half as he had, what, one for 13 going into that final quarter. But at 83-81, for whatever the reason, the switch went off. And when you're a great player in this league, And I get it. We've seen it time after time where people just don't have it. Or if they're going to continue to chuck threes, whether it's that irrational confidence or whether it's a scenario where the player, you know that they're just overdue. And thankfully for Tatum, with about four minutes to go at 83-81, he made that first three to make it 84-83, then the second one to make it 87-83 before tacking on two more threes, including the Game clincher at 89-84 to get that three to make it 92-84, which was the biggest shot of all. And then he tacked on another three to just ice what was a dicey game six. Philadelphia, of course, knowing that they needed to clinch that game, they didn't want to have to go back to Boston to have it fester for two and a half days before they played in that game seven yesterday. And in the first half, the Sixers were flying. You had P.J. Tucker had 11 points at the end of the first quarter. And if you thought to yourself at that point as a Celtic fan that P.J. Tucker's your leading scorer, you could have looked at it as like, hey, that's a good sign because Embiid and Harden hadn't gone off. Or as a sign of, wait a minute, if P.J. Tucker is going to lead the brigade and then have Embiid and Harden follow after that, we could be in serious trouble. 
But Jason Tatum got off to a good start himself. He was four from eight from the field, got 11 points, and was able to put away the horrors of what happened in Philadelphia over those first three and a half quarters, as I mentioned a couple minutes ago. And then even with the Celtics having to chip away, they were down by nine in the second quarter. And then they were able to get the lead at the half to make it 55-52. And after a three by the Sixers to start off the second half, tied at 55, at that point, the Celtics went on a 25-3 run and put the game away, thanks to Jason Tatum, big time. And I'll get more into him in a second. But with that run and the Sixers not scoring a point for six minutes in the game, turnovers left and right, James Harden just a mess. And I'll also get to him too. And from that point on, once they got on that roll to make it 80-58, to it was cruise control from that point on. And even for me, I said, "Uh uh-uh, this game is far from over. At that point, it was maybe about two and a half minutes in the third quarter. I said, let's get to two minutes left in the fourth quarter and see where we're at. But the Celtics were able to just continue to pile on, and the Sixers were just nowhere to be found. And they were out of sync, out of sorts. That run just took the life out of them, and the building just exalted. And it made me think about the game last year against Milwaukee and Boston in that Game 7 where it was close at the half. And then that third quarter, Grant Williams and even Peyton Pritchard with a contribution just blew the doors off of that game and that building. And the Celtics were able to move on, ironically, to play the Miami Heat in a conference final, which they're going to see again Come Wednesday, as I mentioned, and I'll get to that series in a moment. But as far as the game overall, Jason Tatum, he made it his statement game. This was his Milwaukee of Game 6 last year. 51 points just two weeks ago where you had Steph Curry hold the record for a 50-point game or most points in a Game 7 where he did that against Sacramento. Now Jason Tatum eclipsed him by one point. And just to see him with the passion, the fire, fury, especially in the first half and even into the third quarter but as the game went on I know he had to put up the 50 piece that he could spare me with that come on act like you've been there Mr. Tatum I love you to pieces and I want you to go all the way to the top of the NBA mountain but for him by putting up the 50 uh could you you could put that aside don't look at it as like oh it's all about me granted he was the one that carried the Celtic team not only at the end of game six but obviously yesterday afternoon and then of course once the Game was winding down and he got pulled there with a couple of minutes left to go and he just walks off with his arms up in the air. And I understand he's basking in the glow, the crowd, just the euphoric atmosphere there that was at TD Bank Garden. And again, spare me with that. I thought it was a little bit too much. I get it. He was excited. I get it that he was caught up in the moment, but you only were able to get past the second round. If that was a... Conference final, or obviously an NBA final, totally different story. And I get it. He was the one that saved them from extinction there on Thursday night. So when you have the Celtics being able to prevail and move on, which was good for them, and that was one of the things that I talked about, if you remember, a month ago when I did this preview of the playoffs, one of them was, can the Celtics get back to the NBA finals with that whole unfinished business that you see on their warm-ups? to get back to that same moment that they were last year, whether it's up to one or just get to the finals period, to see if they could put the finishing touch on what was that close for them to win last year. Remember, they were up 94-90 with five minutes to go in game four, and from that point on, they lost the series. So that was one of my storylines heading into this postseason. 
And if you're a Celtic fan, I know you rejoice, but you got the heat coming up and that is not going to be an easy matchup to say the least. But as far as the Sixers go, just another major disappointment. And I know Joel Embiid, he says, I got to be better. This is going to stick with me for a long time. And all they got to do is go back to game number six where James Harden again was awful. And Embiid, although he had a stretch of the game where I believe he ended up, what, 26 points, but he didn't touch the ball in the final few minutes. He didn't even get the ball. He said that in the post game, which made you think, "Uh uh-oh, is that a shot on the coaching staff with Doc Rivers? And even though he mentioned in the post game how he and Rivers are very good and loves the working relationship and the job that Rivers has done there in Philadelphia, but that was a sign where it made you think like, "Uh uh-oh, let's see if that's going to carry over into Sunday. And then yesterday, Embiid... And give it up for Joe Mazzulla. Let me throw this in there. Because I mentioned this on the podcast Thursday. Where he needed to make some serious adjustments. And what did he do? He put Robert Williams in the starting lineup. Which was just ecstatic. For the rest of the team. Including Marcus Smart. He loved it that Rob Williams was part of the starting lineup. And as you saw. Embiid didn't get off to a good start there in game 6. And then even though he got his shots. And was able to get some points there. In the second half, into the start of the fourth quarter, and then the defense came back again with Horford, with Rob Williams, and Embiid was shut down there toward the end of the game. Now, granted, he didn't get the ball, but you would think defense has something to do with that. And then yesterday, with that lineup, what did Embiid do? Absolutely nothing. 15 points in the game, did not shoot well, and Embiid has to find a way to see if he could gut these games out, whether it's just give me the ball, I'll try to do it all, or maybe that's just a little bit too much for him to chew on, considering that despite him being the MVP and despite him being a guy that has matured here over the last few years, but maybe he's not set to just say, give me the ball, I'm going to be a bull in a china shop and I'm going to try to wreck this game on my own and see if I could drag this team, maybe not through the finish line, but at least to the finish line to know that we had a shot in the final few minutes to where in the game yesterday, by the time the third quarter ended, it was far from over. Or, excuse me, it was completely over. Not far from over. From a fan's sake, yes, because you never know what's going to happen in the NBA. You got runs, you got missed opportunities. But with that being said, big faux pas on me, my apologies. But when you have Embiid at least be accountable for what he said there in the postgame, and then James Harden, if you're the Sixers, and I get it, Daryl Morey is your GM, and we know that he is tied to the hip with James Harden going back to his days in Houston. But he's a guy that I would not sign. If anything, I would try to do my best, and not that I'm trying to get into Daryl Morey's ear or to put on my GM hat, but all those rumors, if you remember, going back a couple of years ago, and I'm sure the Knicks fan, they're going to think the same way, and I'm going to get to them in a second, but I would do whatever it takes. You want to bring an assassin to your team, you want to bring a guy that, I get it, he's going to want the ball just as much as Harden, and he's going to want to shoot the ball just as much as Harden, but maybe for a guy to get him out of Portland... And if you're Daryl Morey, if you want to entertain the thought of bringing in Damian Lillard, I would certainly think long and hard about doing so. Because, not to say he's won anything, and not to say that he has MVPs or he has a lot of hardware on his mantle, but who knows, maybe a change of scenery, maybe just the thought of him playing East, and I understand it's a big city and a city that's starving for a championship, but who knows, maybe that'll be enough with he and Embiid to get them over the top and know that he could be that guy that's going to be fearless that's not going to take a back seat and is certainly not going to succumb or even fold under the big pressure of the bright lights when it 
really matters or when the money's on the line the way we've seen Harden here over these last two games. And it makes you wonder and scratch your head. How could he have these performances in game one and in game four when they were down two games to one and then in games five and six, or excuse me, six and seven, he was invisible. And that's the conundrum. That is the $64,000 question when it comes to James Harden and his career. Yes, he's the guy that has the hardware on his mantle. He's the guy that has won MVPs. He's the guy that's done a lot of great things offensively. And we look at him almost as a unicorn to be the guy that's not only going to score the way he has and also dish the ball and triple doubles and have all these big-time analytics and sabermetric stats that just jump off the page. But we all know it boils down to wins, losses, and when the money's on the line. And that's the one thing that analytics cannot provide. Eye test. Again, when it really matters, when the life is on the line, season on the line, where is he? And not only was Game 6, but Game 7 indicative of that. And he was just so bad... I can see if he had a bad shooting performance, where we've seen that in the past in his days in Houston. But turning the ball over, dribbling the ball off his feet, throwing the ball into the stands. I mean, I could have been out there and I probably would have given a better effort. And I understand you may laugh at that or you may say, oh yeah, please, Jerry, stop it. But did you see that performance there by James Harden? It's beyond puzzling. And this is a guy that's going to be a shoe-in Hall of Famer. He's going to go in and roller skates. That's how easy it's going to be. But when you look at that performance yesterday, it makes you think this guy is not a Hall of Fame player. But I don't want to just pile on him. It's so easy to pile on Harden and guys like that because for all their prolific numbers and what they've done in the regular season, and yes, they've had their moments in the playoffs. But boy, I tell you, man, when one more time, when you have to put it all on the line, the guy never shows up. And if I'm a Sixer fan... And Daryl Morey, one more time, I'd have to really go to bed at night wondering whether or not I should sign this guy to a long-term contract. And now he's, what, 33 years of age on top of that? So that's my situation there with the Celtics Sixers as we move on from there. The other Eastern Conference semifinal had the Nixon Heat. And Jalen Brunson, for as wonderful of a game that he had, 41 points. Sadly, it's going to come down to those final 20 seconds at 92-90 when he turned the ball over. And I don't want to put it all on him, but the guy gave you a gargantuan effort. You can't knock anything what he had done here, especially over the last two games where he played all 48 minutes in game number five and scored 38 points and then 41 points here on Friday night. But it's the supporting cast that really is going to, again, if you're the Nick hierarchy, so if you're Leon Rose and World Wide West, and yes, this was an accomplishment and a step forward to win a first round against a good team in the Cleveland Cavaliers, and then to go to six games against a Heat team that, let's face it, they have the culture. I've said it a thousand times, and they have the makeup, maybe not the sexiness and the just overall overwhelming talent, but they have the makeup and they have the attitude that that's why they're here for the third time in four years. But for Julius Randle, who has a lot to answer to, three for 14 in that game number six, And him not being, let's face it, a factor at all. And R.J. Barrett shooting one for 10. And here's a guy who's a third overall pick. And I get it that he was in that draft with the top two picks as Zion, who as we know has not seen on a basketball court in quite some time. And then John Morant, who was the second pick that year. And I'm going to get to him in a little while. But for Barrett, who has not 
stepped up as a guy that you could 100% truly rely on. And if you're a Nick fan, I'm sure you got to be just aggravated and frustrated knowing that this team had chances, but the Heat were better throughout the course of this six-game series. I get it, game five, the Knicks had their uprising, and that's great, but the Heat were the better team. And as showed there, whether it is Jimmy Butler, whether it's Bam Adebayo, whether it's, and I've talked about this now, it seems ad infinitum, this team has resources. And I get it, they don't have players that jump right out at you as far as All-Stars or All-NBA nods. Yes, Jimmy Butler, we know. And then with Tyler Hero, who is arguably their second best player on the team, I know you could say Bam Adebayo, but for this team to now make it to this point, a lot of it has to do with the coaching. A lot of it has to do with just the togetherness of this group, of the front office, of the way the team has been constructed. They're just a bunch of dogs on this team. Guys that will go through a brick wall. Guys that just put on the hard hat, bring in their lunch pails, clock in, clock out, do their job. Are they the most finesse team? Are they the most sexiest team? Are they the most dominant team? Are they a team that, at the end of the day, you're going to really truly remember as a star-studded or just a team that has a lot of scoring or a particular identity? Yes, their identity is toughness, grit, conditioning, etc. Because other than that, you don't have any of those things that when you look at some of the other teams in a sport. Look at the other three teams that are still standing. You have a two-time MVP with Nikola Jokic, and we understand the offense goes through him. LeBron and AD in LA, do I even need to say more? And Boston is Jason Tatum, Jalen Brown, and a very deep team in the Celtics. And then you have the Heat. And here they are standing as another conference finalist, again, looking to see if they could get back to an NBA final and finally get themselves over the hump where they couldn't get three years ago in the bubble and obviously couldn't get to last year as they were a Jimmy Butler three away from making it to the finals to see if they could get back there with another run against the Celtics. As far as the West, Denver, just a stupendous job by them in not only beating, but taking the Suns to the back of the woodshed and destroying them by 25, which was reminiscent of the game last year in the same setting, although it was in a Game 7 where Dallas went into that building and Luka Doncic just embarrassed them up and down the court. We all know Chris Paul with one point. Devin Booker, invisible in that game. And the Suns went off into the night and into the offseason with so many questions to answer. And the same for Phoenix here, but I'll get to them in a second. As far as Denver, to me, that was a statement game. Because a lot of people thought that this was going to go back to Denver for a Game 7. We saw the way that Devin Booker and Kevin Durant had performed in those two home games where they tallied for 86 points in one game. And Devin Booker was arguably the best player throughout all of the teams in this postseason. And then the clock struck 12 there last Thursday night. Booker was unable to get on track. He was 4 for 13 in the game. Didn't even meet the media after the game, which is just a terrible job by him. Come on, Devin Booker. You got to face the music there at that point to say what went wrong, what happened. You got to answer those questions. And I know that it was a bitter end and a deflating end because that was the type of game where it was death by a thousand paper cuts. It wasn't because you lost on a Jamal Murray three-point shot or they had a 10-2 run to close out the game, and the Suns just had a gut punch there. Uh Uh-uh. 
that was not the case. This was definitely a slow death. And certainly for him, he decided to walk his ass right out of that footprint center and into the Phoenix night and nowhere to be heard from or found. And that's just not a good job by him. And Kevin Durant, yes, it was disappointing. It was embarrassing. He said all the right things as he faced the media afterwards. And then Denver, they're going to be a tough out here. And as we've seen, they're the last one standing. Obviously, there's only two one seeds with them. And of course, the Bucks being long gone. But Denver means business. And that would, to me, show the NBA that, yes, we can win on the road. We can win. Not to say that's a hostile environment. But when you had those two guys going, KD and Booker, to know that they were back at home, home cooking to see if they could get on track. And they just shot that down with the quickness. And next up is LA. And all I got to say about the Lakers, similar to the Heat, they were this close from being maybe not out of the postseason. But remember, the Heat were three minutes away from losing that game to Chicago. And thank you to the Atlanta Hawks for just manhandling the Heat in that opener of the playing tournament because... The Heat, if they would have won that game, they would have played Boston. And who knows how that series would have turned out considering what they did to Milwaukee. And I get it, Giannis was out for two and a half games, etc. But thankfully that changed the trajectory of the postseason because that would have been, who knows what that would have turned out to be for the Celtics. And as it was, with the Hawks beating them and the Bulls up 90-87 with three and a half minutes to go, who knows what the Heat would have been. They could have been on the golf course right now. But Jimmy Butler willed them to victory then. Willed them to victory in the Buck series. And of course, contributed here and against the Knicks. And the same for the Lakers. As the Timberwolves of all teams had them on the ropes. Had a lead there into the fourth quarter. And had to go into overtime. If you recall, remember that Anthony Davis. Where he fouled Mike Conley there in the corner. And he made his three free throws. Pressure free throws at that to go into overtime. And they were able to somehow, some way get out of that game. As a seven seed. And here they are after winning a first round series against Memphis and now dethroning the defending champ Warriors. They are now in a Western Conference Final. And let's see, you have a seven seed in the Lakers and an eight seed in the Miami Heat, both on this stage. And LeBron saved his best game as far as an offensive output point-wise in this game six as he scored 30. Klay Thompson had an awful game. Steph Curry shot a lot, did get his points, but was not efficient. And there were just no answers for Golden State. As they were unable to get back home for Game 7 to see what could have happened then. We all know that would have been a toss-up. But the Lakers dominated there, especially in the second half. And a go away with a big victory. And Golden State now goes into an offseason where Draymond Green, is he going to come back? Klay Thompson is a free agent after next season. But I don't want to hear about this warrior dynasty. And I get it. Everybody wants to throw that word around. This team is not a dynasty. Yes, they did win three and five. Really three and four years now that I think about it. And they actually could have won five. And they went to five straight NBA finals. To me, that's a dynasty. And I get it. Three out of four is more of a dynasty than three out of five. But because they went to five straight and lost in that 73-9 and nine season, as we all know, to LeBron in 2016... But then to go two years after that and then win last year the way they did. But to me, they're not a dynasty in my eyes. Somebody else wants to call them that? Fine. And I wish somebody could call me up to argue. But obviously, this is not a two-way sports talk telephone program. But be that as it may, the Warriors have a lot to regroup. And they even admitted that they were maxed out by the time they got to this point. 
Of course, the Kings gave them all that they could handle. A young, upstart team. And then the Lakers, they're the Lakers. And if Anthony Davis is going to be healthy and involved, and LeBron, although it's not the same player, but he's going to contribute in the way he contributes. And then when you have the guys like Austin Reeves, Rhea Achimura, who didn't really have a big series, but you also had Lonnie Walker, who had that key game four for them, and also contributed there in a game six. And now the Lakers, here they are. A lot of people thought that, oh, there's no way they're going to get out of the series against Memphis, and, and look what happened. They're back in the conference final. And as I take a look at the conference finals before I move on, I'll start with tomorrow night. I think the Lakers could win this series. They absolutely can. They need to get one of these first two. And as we've seen here, they were able to get games won in Memphis and in Golden State. And I think it's also imperative to get game one here. Now, who knows what the altitude, this team has played there several times, as we know. But Denver has been able to win these games, whether it's against Minnesota or Phoenix, in their building. So let's see if they can continue their winning ways at home. If they go up to love, then I think Denver's going to win the series, of course. I don't think the Lakers are going to win four out of five against the Nuggets. But I think the Lakers could win, but I think the Nuggets are going to win in six. And I wouldn't be surprised if it goes seven. I'll even go as far as that. But I think the Nuggets, they know this is their time. This is their year. And with the way they've been playing so far, all right, Minnesota, you're not going to look at them as a threat. But by them winning that game six on the road, to me, I thought that was a statement game because it showed the rest of the league that, uh uh-oh, they're not a team that's just going to take advantage of the home court. And even if they do slip up on the home court, We've seen them win on the road, and especially in a closeout spot in this fashion. So to me, I'm going to look at that as a sign of this series and maybe even down the road of things to come for a Nugget team that looks like they're ready to take that next leap. So I'm going to pick them in six. And this is going to be tough. This Heat Celtic series, these teams know each other very well. This is the third time in four years that they're playing in a conference final. Think about that. So there aren't going to be any surprises. There's not going to be any particular things that they're not going to be aware of. I understand you had a different coach here. And think about it. This is the third time in four years that the Celtics and Heat have matched up here in this round. Three different coaches. Brad Stevens in the bubble. Last year, Odoka. And now, Missoula. And this is where it could get dicey if you're a Celtic fan. Spolster is going to have that edge. And I understand that the Celtics, even with a rookie head coach last year in Udoka, but he's more defensive-oriented, they were able to win that game. And granted, they won it by the hairs of their chinny-chin-chin in that game seven, if you recall. 13-point lead, three and a half to go, and Jimmy Butler's almost three. You get the drift. But for Missoula, he's going to have to continue, even without the offensive firepower that the Sixers have, especially with the two players, he's going to have to continue to play a defensive type of game. Because Jimmy Butler, we all know that he's a guy that's guts and guile. And Bam Adebayo, we know that he could be an offensive machine, especially when it comes to the glass and also his defensive presence. So they're going to need to have that matchup there, which is important. And I understand that the Max Struces could get hot and the Gabe Vincents and even Kyle Lowry, a veteran president, could come off the bench and he could also make a contribution. This is a series I could see going minimum six and I would say seven. And the one thing I would think, this is the rubber match. Remember, the Heat won in six in the bubble, the Celtics in seven last year, and let's see who's going to come out on top. And if this means anything to Jason Tatum yesterday and to the Celtics and his entire run, I'm going to pick the Celtics in seven. I know Missoula, he's going to really have to watch his P's and Q's here because 
Spolster couldn't address him with these matchups. And I'm sure he's going to say, hey, let Tatum and Brown get their points. We just can't let the Marcus Smarts or even Horford get his points from the three line or whatever it may be. Or even Brogdon go off when he comes off the bench. Whatever it is. So, I think both of these series are going to be great. They're going to be fascinating. And I can't wait. It all begins tomorrow. And speaking of tomorrow, you have the NBA draft lottery. Before I get to a couple other things. The draft lottery, which is going to be huge this year. Because you have Victor Wembanyama, A guy who is, and I butchered his name by the way. Wembanyama. Try saying that five times. He's the French kid, 7'4", who has handles like a point guard, and he is long, wide, shoots the three, could break you off a dribble, play defense, etc. The one thing I'd be worried about this kid, and I'm not even going to say his health, but we've seen big men. All you got to do is look back last year, Chet Holmgren, the kid who came out from Gonzaga, where during the summer league, broke his foot. We could go back to Ralph Sampson, Sean Bradley, Guys that are that tall and that lean, and you'd even be afraid to put on a lot of muscle, but you got to put on enough, you wonder about their long-term health. Because with legs, with feet, knees, especially with that type of length, that's one you're really going to have to wonder. Whomever drafts him, and Detroit, I get it that it's 14% with a couple of other teams, and I'll go through that in a second. But for Wembenyama, who could be a generational player, if he remains healthy and he remains the type of player that we've seen in highlights and all of the things that just jump off the page when you see this kid. But that's just something to be aware of because of his slender build and his height. You got to wonder, and me, I'm not a doctor and I haven't even watched this kid play in a game from start to finish. But that's the one thing that would concern me when I think about big men that size. Even though he's 19, he's young, etc. He's got the whole life especially his basketball life ahead of him. As for the lottery tomorrow night and the odds, talk about the Pistons, 14%. They had the worst record in the sport, followed by Houston and San Antonio, who were tied at 22 and 60. They both also have a 14% chance. And think about this. If you're Greg Popovich, I'm sure you're salivating at the thought of possibly getting another generational type of player as he had in Tim Duncan back in 1997. And to think, if San Antonio falls in the top three, where we have the proceedings there on ESPN tomorrow night, and if they happen to be the final three, I would not be shocked if San Antonio gets the number one pick. I could almost sense it. And to me, even back then, remember, I'm a Celtic fan. I was hoping to get Duncan. And when San Antonio had that first pick overall, where the Celtics were third, and they had the worst record by far in the sport that year, they were also 17-65. And watch San Antonio come out with this pick tomorrow night. Well, I'll be sick. Because I've never liked San Antonio, and even though I know they've fallen on hard times here over the last few years, but watch them get Wimbanyama, and next thing you know, Popovich is going to be flying high, he'll get an extension, and he'll probably win a title in the next five years. So, that's that. And then you also have Charlotte, and then Portland round out the top five. Generally, we'll see what happens. We always know that there could be a team that could move up, or there's a ping pong ball that happens to fall by the wayside for one team that thought they were good. Let's say, for instance, Charlotte. They dropped down to like eight. And then whomever's eight, they could probably move up into the top four. Or somewhere along those lines. So that's something we'll keep in mind of. And we'll definitely talk about that on Thursday's podcast. Two other things before I move on to the NHL. Monty Williams got a raw deal in Phoenix. And I know I probably could have mentioned that. Or even should have mentioned that during the segment there. When I talked about the Denver-Phoenix series. 
But I knew right away once the word came down Saturday night that Monty Williams was fired from his job there in Phoenix just 48 hours after they lost to the Nuggets. And the first thing I thought of was it had to be the owner. Matt Ispia, who's a guy that has just got here five minutes ago and started to make a little controversy with the whole Nikola Jokic thing. I know he was having fun afterwards with Jokic there before. I think it was, what, game number four or game five? I forgot what that was. Maybe it was game five in Denver. But for Ispia to now come in here and to throw his weight around, I get it, he's an owner and he can do whatever he wants. But this guy two years ago took his team to an NBA final. And granted, they had embarrassing losses to end their seasons the last two years. But again, he wasn't part of last year's regime. And he just got here, what, in the latter part of February into March? So he had to tell James Jones, the GM, and his decision came down from all reports after the game on Thursday. But it wasn't until Saturday that he told the GM, James Jones, to call Monty Williams to let him know that he's going to be let go of his job. And how James Jones even admitted that, oh my God, it was the toughest thing I had to do. And I'm sure that they are mad tight and obviously have a great working relationship. And Monty Williams, we know he's a great guy. And a lot of the tragedy that he's had to go through with his ex-wife over the years, so on and so forth. And him to win that coach of the year two years ago, although they lost in the final. And think about this, both he and Mike Budenholzer, who were part of that NBA Finals, gone as coaches just two years later, which is just unfathomable to even comprehend but for Ispia to have his fingerprints on this and he I think he should have given Williams one more year despite the fact that he had this terrible loss compounding with last year but with Durant coming in midseason and them not really getting themselves on track and even with Chris Paul although aging and not the same player but not playing in the last four games of the series I would just say run it back with these guys try to fine-tune and maybe retool just a little bit And if Williams doesn't get you to an NBA final or bows out in the conference finals the way he did these last two years, then if you want to say goodbye, I could get that. But for him to just dismiss him pretty much once the game was over, and Monty Williams is going to find a job in five minutes. He is a very good coach. He's a guy that's well-respected around the league. And I just thought Ispia was just flexing his new owner muscles and with his new toy and trying to be a guy that's just going to make an imprint and an impact. Let the basketball guys do their things and you just stay out of it. So that's just my two cents on it. And I know people can say, Jay Reels, you're not an owner. You don't know what you're talking about. You don't know anything about business. And I don't. But guess what? I've watched and followed sports my whole life. And you could just automatically just sniff this from a mile away knowing that he had complete accountability on just wanting to get rid of this coach. And to me, that was more of a knee-jerk reaction than for him to really think this out to know that this is a good guy. And maybe with Durant here for a full training camp and full season, Chris Paul healthy, and obviously with Devin Booker in the mix, that maybe we can make a run. And also DeAndre Ayton. Let's throw that in the mix too. Maybe with a whole full season under their belts, let's see what Williams could do under his ownership. But that's not going to be the case. So let me move on to John Morant, who for everything that he said toward the end of the regular season and even during the... Post-game interview when they got ousted by the Lakers saying that I need more discipline. I have learned from my mistakes. I have all the things that you're going to tell people and pretty much what they want to hear as opposed to what they really should hear. And then over the weekend, a video surfaces on an Instagram live feed where he's in a car listening to music with one of his buddies. And I believe the same buddy that was banned from the... Arena there in Memphis with the alleged reports about the 
Indiana Pacer bus and a red laser pointed at the vehicle or at the bus as it was leaving the arena when the Pacers were in town a few months back. And a lot of these incidents that have taken place with a 17-year-old, how this one guy, Devontae Pack, has been, I guess, his right-hand man. And now he's in a car where he flashes a gun, John Morant, that is, in this video to where the Grizzlies have now suspended him to be away from the facility, away from any meetings, personnel, etc., And boy, I guess the lesson did not sink in for one John Morant after what happened there in Denver with that Instagram Live video brandishing a gun at a club. And you have to wonder whether or not this kid is ever going to get it. And we know his father is a big part of his life and his father has been at the games. We saw him there at the Laker game fighting, not necessarily fighting, but trying to cool his jets with Shannon Sharp, etc. And it looks like he comes from a very good background. At least his father seems to be in his life and not that I know, I'm just speculating and observing from afar, but if this isn't going to be the telltale sign whether he has to get rid of this guy, his friend, where he's not really a friend because I'm sure he's just riding on his coattails and maybe they go back to grade school, I don't know, but because of the association thinking that, oh, my boy is going to have my back, I got whatever he's got, I got, etc. If he's going to have that mentality, then Morant's going to have to cut him loose. That's all there is to it. If he's going to have any shot to stay in the straight and narrow, to get away from just the badass life, the gangster life, whatever you want to call it. And we all know that that's not going to mix here in a league that is billions, as we all know. And not to say that he'll get thrown onto the street, but you'd only hope that the suspension, which who knows how long it's going to last. I think it's maybe a bit premature because now... We're already into the offseason, and their season was done two weeks ago. But the Grizzlies had to do what they had to do, and this is on the heels of the eight-game suspension that the NBA handed down. Now, mind you, he was gone for six games before they said, all right, it's an eight-game suspension, so he had to finish the final two, as I talked about there weeks ago. But Morant, he's got to get his act together, and if he's not going to do it now, then who knows if he's ever going to do it. And you can only hope that maybe this will be the final call for him to get back to where his priorities, his values, and really take a personal look from within, as I like to say here on the podcast from time to time, to not only hold himself accountable, but to get himself back to where he could be that NBA superstar. And he already cost himself some money not being on the all-NBA team. So if he's all about the money and knowing that he did not get $39 million extra for his next contract, then who knows? Maybe this will be his wake-up call to finally get himself together and move along here, not only throughout this offseason, but whenever the suspension is lifted and into next season for the Memphis Grizzlies. And one last thing before I wrap up with the NBA, I know I spent over 40 minutes on this, and trust me, I'll get to other things and try to keep this as maybe a little bit over an hour, but now you have these Final Four, and of course, if you're Adam Silver, you are on your hands and knees, fingers crossed, the whole nine, and praying for a Lakers-Celtic final. I think if you do Lakers-Heat, only because they played a few years ago, and obviously LeBron used to play in Miami, and now you'll have a better setting because you don't have the bubble anymore. You would have to actually have games in LA and Miami as opposed to what happened there three years ago in Orlando. But I would think in this order, you would want Lakers-Celtics, Lakers-Heat, and then either Celtics-Nuggets... Heat Nuggets. The last thing they want is a Miami-Denver NBA Final. I don't care how much Adam Silver wants to spin it. 
if it's Miami Denver, that is not going to be a final that the average fan is going to gravitate to. If you have Celtics there and Lakers, it's a slam dunk automatic. And for ratings, we all know that, that everybody's going to want to watch that. If you have Lakers Heat, all right, not too bad. But because of what happened there three years ago, it's a rematch. I'm sure they'll live with that. Celtics only because of Tatum and Brown and the Celtics were there last year against the Nuggets. And that should be a fun series. But then you have Heat Nuggets, which does not bring a lot of sex appeal to the American public. So we shall see. As I mentioned, it begins tomorrow night. And now let me shut up and move on to the NHL because their conference finals will be set after tonight. And I'll start there because the Seattle Kraken, I got to give it up to them a thousand percent. Here they are pushing the envelope to another Game 7, and this is without their best player, Jared McCann, as well as Andre Burakovsky for a lot of this postseason. And now they're one win away from going to a conference final. And we saw what they did in the first round against Colorado, beating them on the road in the Game 7. Of course, the defending Stanley Cup champs. And now, when they were down 3-2, and it looked like Dallas was going to take control of the series as they won Game 4 and Game 5. And here it was, Game 6, they were able to win and going away, I might add, so it wasn't a nail-biter. Seattle has what it takes to win this game. And knowing that the Stars had to pull their goaltender, Jake Edinger, out of game number six, and you wonder what his psyche is going to be like coming into this game tonight, it really leaves a lot of intriguing storylines heading into a game where Seattle has house money, but I'm sure they're going to expect to win based on what they've done here so far in this playoff. And Dallas, it's all right in front of them. A home game... They played two games where they they played a game six where, for whatever reason, they did not show up. And Seattle has been a team where the game that they absolutely had to win, they have won, whether it's game six, or excuse me, whether it was game five in the last series. Because remember, Colorado won game six, 4-1 in Seattle. So they returned their favor there in the game seven, as we know. And they've been able to win the game they had to win. But Dallas has been steady. They've been good in their building, as we've seen. And my gut is telling me that Dallas is going to win this game tonight. But I would not be shocked if Seattle goes away and moves on to a conference final. But I'm just going to go with my gut and say Dallas. I think Edinger will rebound. I think the stars of the stars, meaning Jason Robertson, Tyler Sagan, etc. I think they will win tonight and move on to play the Vegas Golden Knights who won last night in Edmonton. They were down 2-1 there early. And then Jonathan Marshall had a very good series and actually has bounced back nicely. Had a hat trick in a closeout game in Edmonton to beat the Oilers. And Vegas, we know that they are a one seed for a reason. They have been steady, if not spectacular, the whole year. And here they are now, back in the conference final. We know in their first year of existence, they went to a Stanley Cup final. And obviously, they want more. They've said to a man in that locker room that we're halfway there. We're halfway to getting the job done. So kudos to what the Golden Knights have done here in this postseason. And Edmonton, they need a goalie. And they also need a veteran presence there that wins cups. And we saw that last year with Duncan Keith. He was a guy that won cups in Chicago as a defenseman. But they need a guy like that that's going to take him over the top. Because Connor McDavid can't do it all on his own. As well as Leon Dreisaitl. And McDavid did have a goal there last night. But Edmonton, another season where there was high expectations coming off of a conference final last year against Colorado and now this year. And that's why I said, after winning game two the way they did in Vegas, 5-1, if they would have taken the next two games in Edmonton, 
I would have felt that they meant business and knew that they were going to maybe even take that next step. And I get it. Vegas is a one seed. So it's not as if they're going to dominate, but by them being dominated in game three, the way they were in game two, Vegas, that is winning five, one, I said to myself, I don't know if Edmonton's going to have the chops to do so. And as we've seen, yes, they did win game four to get the equalizer, but they were unable to get on track after that. And they are gone for this Stanley Cup playoff and now we have Vegas against maybe Dallas or Seattle we'll have to wait and see and then in the east the Florida Panthers kept on chugging I know it was valiant I don't want to say valiant too strong of a word for the Leafs to get back in the game I know they were down 2-1 before William Nylander got the tying goal there halfway more than halfway through the third period but that Panther train just keeps on chugging and now they're in a conference final against their division opponent the Carolina Hurricanes who they took care of the Devils and Jesper Fast with another overtime goal as they beat the Devils there in a game five. And now you have Carolina, Florida. And I don't know if Gary Bettman, I'm sure he's the type of guy who says, I don't care. It could be Dallas or Seattle. Maybe there's a part of him that wants Seattle there only because they are the new kid on the block. They're only in their second year of existence. Maybe to see if that magic carpet ride could take them to a Stanley Cup final. But unlike the NBA Final Four, this NHL Final Four, they're going to draw flies to watch this Stanley Cup. Could you imagine a... doesn't matter. You could put these matchups however you want. I'm sure they're going to want Vegas there. They'll think of Sin City and Vegas has gone to a cup. In the East, there isn't an average hockey fan that could tell you two Carolina Hurricane players or two Carolina... or excuse me, or two... Florida Panthers, I was going to say Carolina Panthers because obviously the football team get mixed up with the hockey team. So with the East, that is just slim pickings to draw anybody to the television set. And then in the West, maybe Vegas, Seattle in the conference final, that could be intriguing. Maybe not to the average sports fan or the casual sports fan. But the NHL, this is going to be a tall task to try to attract any viewers to bring people to watch this. Because when you have your original six teams gone, the Torontos, the Rangers, the Bruins, as we know, even the defending Stanley Cup champ with Colorado, they're gone. Edmonton, if you want to even look at Connor McDavid as being the face of the sport right now, although a lot of people can't pick that guy out of a lineup. But this is going to be tough for the NHL. I'm sorry. I don't care what Gary Bettman says. Oh, our ratings have been up 5% or whatever. No, no, no. He could break out all the numbers he wants, but that is not going to be the case because this is going to be a tough watch for, you know I'll be into it and I'm going to follow it, but when you don't have the marquee teams there or teams that have a pedigree, where we know Florida hasn't been to a Stanley Cup since 1996 and I believe it's their first conference final since then. Carolina, they won a cup in 2006, but nobody could tell you the players from that team or even who the coach was, Peter Laviolette. The Golden Knights, all right, they won the cup just five years ago. But again, it's not a rooted hockey hotbed, to say the least. And then Seattle, they just got into the league five minutes ago. And then you have Dallas, who they're the former Minnesota North Stars. I get it from 30-plus years ago, but still. And I understand the Stars made it to a cup final there in the bubble against Tampa. But nobody's going to confuse them as Toronto, Hockey Town USA, and Detroit Rangers, Boston, Montreal, etc. So that's where hockey is going to be lacking here. 
as we get into the conference finals, which will begin Tuesday for the East and I believe Wednesday for the West. Now as I put on my batting gloves and get into the batter's box to get into some baseball, and it was a wild weekend on a lot of different fronts here where you had a couple of improbable sweeps. Now I understand Toronto's a very good team. Give it up for them and what they've done here so far in this early part of the year. But for the Braves to go north of the board and get swept by Toronto, I was pleasantly surprised to see that. Even though the Mets didn't make up a lot of ground, they did win two out of three against the Nationals, barely. And they had the final game in a wraparound series against the Nats in Washington to close out their series before coming home against the Tampa Bay Rays, who are staying in town. I'll get to them in a minute. And then the Cleveland Guardians right after that. But for the Blue Jays to take care of the Braves the way they have, and then another shock was the Red Sox, who have played very well here over this last couple of weeks, although this week wasn't too great, and certainly was not great knowing that the St. Louis Cardinals were coming into town, and the Cardinals, as we all know, have had a dreadful start to their year. They were 13-25 and heading into Fenway, and what happened? They came out with a sweep, including a 9-1 win last night on Sunday Night Baseball. So the... Red Sox, who look like they got their season on track, even though we know their pitching is very suspect to say the least. And for Kenley Jansen, who blew a save there where Chris Sale actually had a very good start, that was one of the losses over the weekend that were deflating for a Red Sox fan and for the team. But for them to get swept by St. Louis there was a shock to say the least. So that's what we have there as far as the sweeps go. I know Pittsburgh and Baltimore was a series that we were looking Forward to with those two teams and the Orioles were able to take two out of three. The Pirates shut out Baltimore yesterday, which was good as they were able to salvage that third and final game. But for the Pirates, they finally dropped out of first place for the first time in a while. And you have to wonder whether or not, as I mentioned a couple of weeks ago, maybe about 10 days ago, is this going to be the beginning of the fallout for the Pirates after that great start, 20-8? and eight. And when we do the math, since then... They are a losers of 11 to 13. So you have to wonder whether or not the rose or the bloom is certainly off the rose to where the Pirates may be coming back to earth to the point where they may be starting to fall out of this playoff race or pennant race, even though we're only a month and a half in. So we'll continue to keep our eyes on that. And then you had the Rays invade the Bronx over the weekend where they got a split yesterday as they were down 2-1 in the series, highlighted by the big comeback by the Yankees there on Saturday to where they were down 6-0. And thanks to Aaron Judge's heroics with a couple of home runs, and they were able to beat the Rays 9-8 and hope to get the, which would have been a big-time series win for the Yankees. They would have gained two games in the standings. And then yesterday, even after the big grand slam, at the game was tied at the time. Now, I was following this from afar because, remember, I'm watching... Celtics and Sixers, I wasn't truly wrapped up on what was happening in the Yankee Ray game, but Taylor Walls hit the game-breaking Grand Slam at the time where the game was tied, and then it was 8-4, to four, and before you know it, the Yankees were starting to chip away until the final at-bat where Aaron Judge was facing the closer Jason Adam, and he hung a slider where Judge took him deep, and Adam just went to his knees thinking that the ball was going to be long gone, but it was caught at the track. And Adam had a smile with Aaron Judge thinking that the game was going to be tied and that he would have blown the game and who knows if the Yankees would have prevailed from there. But they escaped the Bronx with a split. So no harm, no foul in the standings between the two combatants. And they're not going to face each other until the end of July. And remember, because of the balance schedule, they're only going to see each other two more series between now and the end of the year. And the next time they're going to reconvene, I believe it's July 31st. 
So I know the end of July for sure. So we'll see how that race unfolds. But other than that, you had a scenario in Colorado yesterday where I believe in the seventh inning where the reliever Jake Bird was chirping, no pun intended, at Bryce Harper for whatever the reason. And maybe I think he was chirping at someone else. I did watch the highlight, but all I remember is seeing Bryce Harper charging toward Jake Bird because once the final out was made, I believe he was just talking toward the Philly dugout. And Bryce Harper was the one that led the charge out to confront Jake Bird. And even though afterwards it was much ado about nothing, saying how Harper just got caught in the emotion of the game and having Bird just want to get into the ears of the Philly players, how he was just defending his teammates. And then Bird saying that he was a fan of Harper and knows that he plays fiery and he's the type of guy that plays with a lot of emotion. So there seemed to be no bad blood between the two, but the bench is emptied. You had a little bit of some pushing and shoving. Nothing as far as any type of punches thrown or anything significant like that. But both Harper and Bird got ejected and the Phillies who are still trying to find their way into the season. And although they played pretty well here, they were winners of five in a row before losing to the Rockies there yesterday. But Harper, who has a tendency to fly off the handle at times, whether it's with umpires where he gets called third strikes and he's arguing with the umpire or remember that time with Hunter Strickland years ago when he got to a brawl with him up in San Francisco and Harper who plays with that edge and plays with that fire and you got to give it up to him and yesterday was just defending his teammates so that spilled over onto the field again nothing came about as far as any type of punches thrown but you had that scenario in Colorado where they were able to salvage that series and beat the Phillies for nothing. Other than that, baseball is what it is. It's relatively quiet on the whole. And as we get deeper into the week, we'll see what's going to take place there. As I mentioned, the Rays are going to play the Mets. Let's see how that's going to unfold for the Mets here as they just try to get out of Dodge with a series victory, which they're going to need in the worst way. And Max Scherzer came back and he pitched you five innings for a win yesterday in that nightcap of a doubleheader where the game was suspended there on Saturday due to rain. And that was a disaster too. They had these... Poor fans sitting in the rain for four hours before they called it off. And then they picked up from when they left off yesterday where the Nationals won and then the Mets won the nightcap. So that's what you have there with the baseball. Now let me turn my attention to the NFL as they put on the helmet and shoulder pads and then I'll close out with the note on the Preakness this coming Saturday. The NFL schedule, all I'm going to say is the good and the bad. I'm not going to go week by week, people. We'll be here forever if we go through that. But I will say this. These are the things that jumped out at me when it comes to this. You have not one, not two, but three Monday night doubleheaders. And they overlap one another. Week two, week three, and then in early December. I believe maybe week 14, 15. Let me look that up as I speak. I hate the overlapping doubleheaders. They did that last year, if you remember, week two, where they had both games. I think Minnesota, was it? The Eagles, yeah, I think Minnesota-Philadelphia in that Week 2 game, that was the later game, and I believe Buffalo had the first game, and that's off the top of my head. But for the way that the NFL schedule has been constructed here to where they're going to have the doubleheaders where it's 7-15 and 8-30. So you have that in Week 2, and you also have that Week 3, and then I'm going to look it up here. I believe it's Week 14 where they have the schedule there for another doubleheader on a Monday night. Why? Why do that? To me, that doesn't make any sense where you have to, I get it for the fantasy people that they want to be on their phones and try to follow their fantasy players as to, oh wow, who's playing? Who's doing this? Who's doing that? And watch these games at once. 
But Monday, December 11th, and yes, as I mentioned, it is week 14. You have Tennessee at Miami. And by the way, these games are both at the same time. Tennessee at Miami ESPN and then Green Bay at New York, the Giants, at 8.15 on ABC. Why? What are we doing here? It's just more mouths to feed. It's just more just jamming down your throat all these games and you have those doubleheaders including including Cleveland at Pittsburgh is week two. That's the 8.30 game. And the 7.15 game, I have to go back and look. But why are we doing this? To me, it's uncalled for. Just have the standalone. If you want to do it the opening week, which they've done in the past, where you want to do the doubleheader, okay, fine. But to do it now on back-to-back weeks and then later in the year, to me, it doesn't make any sense. And then why is Green Bay featured in a lot of these matchups here on primetime? Do they still think Aaron Rodgers is the quarterback of Green Bay? Now, we're going to see the Jets are plenty, and understandably and rightfully so. But the Packers, just as I mentioned, December 11th, Green Bay at the Giants. Green Bay at this point, if I do the math, week 14, what are they going to be? Three and nine? Four and eight? People really want to see Green Bay? And I get it, they're a national team, cheeseheads, Packer Nation, etc. But nobody's expecting the Packers to do anything big this year. Please. And they're on a ton of games. They go to Vegas in week two, week three, I believe, on a Monday night, which you're going to see Devontae Adams and that storyline. They're in a ton of these games, midway and even later through the year. And I understand they could probably flex out of some of these games, but still, why even put Green Bay on the map when they're going to be an afterthought, you would think, by the time you get to the halfway point of the season? So that's number two. The Thanksgiving games, I do not like. And there's another case, Green Bay at Detroit. Again, do I need to see Green Bay on a national televised game, especially that late in the year? That I didn't understand. Then you have Washington at Dallas. And then your nightcap is, I believe it's San Francisco at Seattle, or it's the other way around. Now, Seattle, we understand they had a very good year last year, and they made it to the postseason before losing to San Francisco. But this isn't the same type of fervor that you recall in the previous decade where you had Colin Kaepernick, Richard Sherman, that rivalry with he and Michael Crabtree. That's long gone. It does not have the same fervor. Russell Wilson, obviously, is in Denver. So you're not going to have that. Those are three games that, right now, I don't even care to watch. And let's go to the opening night game. I should have started there, but because I had to talk about the Monday night and why they had all these Monday night doubleheaders was beyond me. But now you have a scenario where at opening night, and I predicted it was going to be Philadelphia-Kansas City. And I believe that's a Sunday night NBC matchup later on in the year. I think it's week eight or week nine. But you had the Detroit Lions. I have no offense to this organization team, etc. I'm glad they're getting their shine. I'm glad they're getting noticed. But they're going to be sacrificial, dare I say, lions here. Because remember, when the Chiefs won the Super Bowl back in 2020 before the pandemic, and they came back and hosted the opening game against the Houston Texans, they had like 15,000 fans in the building. This go-around, it's going to be packed to the gills. They're going to have the ceremony, etc. And the Lions, for everything that they did in the second half of last season, were this close to making it to the playoffs. They got knocked out by Seattle of all teams, in that 4.30 slot to where their game was an afterthought against Green Bay, but because they beat Green Bay and knocked them out of the postseason, right away they get the opening night matchup, Detroit at Kansas City, to start off the NFL year that first Thursday in September, or second Thursday, whatever it is. Please, that game, I can already see that game being 38-14 written all over it. And it's not a knock on the Lions, their fans, the team, etc., but... Come on, could we have gotten Philadelphia there? 
Could we have got maybe even Buffalo there? We knew Cincinnati was going to be in Kansas City on New Year's Eve. All right, fine. But please, seriously? The, the Lions, all of a sudden now, they're going to get the national fold right out of the gate? I thought that was a bad job. But this is the thing. Because the NFL has spread themselves so thin when it comes to the schedule, because we got a piece of the Thursday night crowd, we got a piece of the Sunday night crowd, we got a piece of the Monday night crowd, because you have Buck and Aitman there, we can't give them a bad game. So, of course, that's going to leave you Detroit at Kansas City. Or it's going to leave you Thanksgiving without having marquee games. Come on, the Commanders, Washington, and Dallas, we've seen that a thousand times over the years. And I don't want to hear all the division rivalry, blah, 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 Thanksgiving, Clint Longley back in 74. I don't want to hear that. And then the Christmas Day games, which of course, they're going to upset the NBA apple cart as they always do and they don't care. They're going to leave every sport, team, whomever it may be in their wake. Your Christmas Day games are Vegas at Kansas City. Eh, all right, maybe it could be good. Who knows? Vegas, I understand Jimmy Garoppolo, but you know with him, he sneezes and he could be out for the year. Your second game is the Giants of Philadelphia. All right, great. But the last Giant game in Philadelphia that you recall was the playoff game to where they got their just lunch handed to them in that divisional playoff game to where the Eagles what won? 38-10 or whatever it was. I forgot what the final was, but that wasn't a game after the first 10 minutes. And then your nightcap, all right, not too bad, is Baltimore and San Francisco. But who knows? Will Lamar Jackson be part of the team because the last two years he was unable to finish out these seasons with injuries and could it be a third year where he won't play on Christmas day or at least later into the season where we could possibly see him there on Christmas night and yeah just this schedule it again I understand between Amazon Prime NBC CBS ESPN you had the Black Friday game with the Dolphins and Jets after Thanksgiving uh, it's just enough I talked about the London and Germany games last week. And I'm not going to go game by game, week by week. Oh, what interesting matchup here. San Francisco at Philadelphia, rematch of the AFC title game. Or excuse me, NFC title game. Because I'm thinking Cincinnati, Kansas City, which is going to be New Year's Eve, like I mentioned, in Kansas City. All these games. I told you about Green Bay being on the docket too many times than for anyone to like, especially with the way the team's going to be constructed now with the quarterback. No offense, Jordan Love, but still... And I understand I am throwing ice cold water on this, but it's just a product of what the league has become over the years, knowing that content is king, the NFL is king, they could put Jacksonville at Houston. And I know Jacksonville's better, they made it to the postseason and won a game, but you understand, they could put them three in the morning on the cooking channel, and they'll get a very good rating. So enough of the schedule, let me close out by saying this. I know some good news for the horse racing fan as Mage, who won the Kentucky Derby, is going to perform in the Preakness, which is good. The horse was a 15-1 to underdog. I may say underdog's too strong, but he was 15-1 to odds to win the Derby, unlike the 30-1 to that we saw last year with Rich Strike. But considering that the horse is going to run here, and let's see how he performs here, if he can maybe win a Preakness to have some steam going into the Belmont to get a triple crown threat in the mix... So knowing that he's not going to bow out and have no drama leading up to the race on Saturday down in Pimlico, Maryland, but knowing that he's going to perform, at least there's going to be a little bit of buzz to see whether or not Mage could do this a second go around to win another race and then have a complete buildup to go to the Belmont, which is not too far from where I'm currently recording this 
to see if we could have any way, shape, or form crowd, atmosphere, excitement for a Triple Crown. And even though we've had a Triple Crown winner here in the last, what, four or five years, but it's always good for this time of year for horse racing to get themselves a horse that could win the first two legs of this Triple Crown to get themselves to the Belmont and see whether or not they could pull it off and get a crowd of 110,000 there, hopefully on a beautiful, sunny Saturday, June afternoon, to pack the place and at least put horse racing on the map for an extra day. Because if Mage does not win this race come Saturday, you can forget about nobody's going to care, the Belmont, and what's going to take place then. Yes, it's an event, people will show up, etc., but it will not have anything close to what we would expect if Mage were to win this race come Saturday. So that's what I have with the horse racing. And that's what I have for this podcast, people. Thank you so much. I know it was a lot of NBA, so many different storylines, so much to really delve into, especially with the off the court stuff with John Morant, as well as Monty Williams getting a raw deal there in Phoenix. So thank you so much for stopping by, for participating in your way, shape or form to give your boy just all the support that I could certainly use and need here as I try to continue to move up this podcast enterprise and this ladder to get myself known and out there to the world and if you haven't done so please subscribe rate and review this podcast on wherever you get your podcast throw me a few stars write a review i would greatly appreciate it if you want to hit me up on any of my socials you could do so at the following on youtube please subscribe like leave a comment at j reels instagram tiktok facebook the j reels podcast twitter j reels one just a number or the old-fashioned way if you want to hit me up with a question comment or suggestion you could do so at the j reels podcast at gmail.com i'll be more than happy to follow up with you guys and gals and lastly if you want to contribute to this endeavor you could do so by going to my patreon page p is in paul at is in tom r-e-o-n is in nancy.com slash the j reels podcast whatever you want to put forth goes 100 percent to this production the upkeep of the website the equipment etc for this experience into your earbuds headphones or speakers through this microphone to make it that much more pleasurable, enjoyable, entertaining, informative, because whether you do or do not know, this is what I love to do, people. It's in the blood. It's in the DNA, as I like to say. Informative, opinionated, analysis, thought-provoking, passion, fire, fury, energy on anything and everything. That happens on the world of the diamond, ice, gridiron, hardwood, golf course, racetrack, tennis court, boxing ring, octagon, you name it. From my lips to your ears, from my heart to your soul, from where I am to wherever you are, the J Reels podcast always comes correct, direct, and in full effect. From the South Bronx, the South Beach, the South Center, the South Pacific, and all points beyond, peace, love, and God bless everybody. And until next time on the J Reels podcast, on the flip, baby. <laughs>